your Bibles again at uh, Exodus 32. You're going to need them. Uh, but I want to read a little more. In fact, I want to read right to the end of the chapter. It's an amazing chapter in God's Word. Starting at uh, verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Uh, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. Uh, you know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go to, to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Uh, nevertheless, um, sorry, I've just lost my place. But now, go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they had made the calf the one that Aaron had made. May God bless the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, our God is a, a great and a mighty and an awesome God. But a God of love and a God of
compassion and a God of forgiveness and a God of salvation. And we know, Father, uh, that the words of man mean nothing. So we pray, please, by the power of God the Holy Spirit, would you work in our minds and our hearts, uh, give us understanding, help us to know what you would have to say to us this afternoon, Father, and give us hearts that are obedient to you, that we may do what we hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you like Disney films. Anybody like Disney films? One or two? Yeah, I don't know whether you've heard about the Disney Gospel. Uh, if you've ever seen a Walt Disney film, one of the most common uh, themes is to follow your heart. If you want everything to turn all, all right in Disneyland, then uh, we have to listen to what our hearts are telling us. Um, and by saying that we should follow our hearts, we're saying that our hearts are the authority, actually, on what we feel is right and wrong. And there's a song from Cinderella called Follow Your Heart. It, it illustrates this absolutely. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it, but I am going to read it. It says, So make your own way, show the beauty within. When you follow your heart, there's no heart you can't win. So reach for the sky, it's not as high as it seems. Just follow your heart, go as far as your dreams. There's a world for the changing, and you've just begun. Don't let them tell you it's simply not done. When you follow your heart, you'll shine bright as the sun. Isn't that a wonderful kind of philosophy? If only it was true. But Disney, of course, is not right. If we ask, do we have to just follow our hearts and everything will be alright? Are we all basically good? There are just a few baddies dotted around like in any Disney film. Well, Exodus uh, chapter 32 gives a resounding no, actually, to all those questions. As this chapter was read, it sounds a million miles away, doesn't it? Many thousands of years from our situation because we're not likely to start melting down our Christian Dior bracelets and our H. Samuel earrings. We're not going to make a cow and then bow down to it or even a chicken and then bow down to it, are we? But if we remember where we are in the book of Exodus, we'll see how this episode actually is quite close to home and has warnings and lessons for us. Uh, so where are we in Exodus? If we look back in the book, we'll see that Moses was up on the mountain. He was being given instructions. There were very important instructions because there were instructions about how God was going to live with his people. So in chapter 25, God says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God with his people. And in chapter 29, he says, And I will dwell amongst the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. And he was giving them instructions about the tabernacle. And that's an important part of the Exodus story. We're seeing how God can dwell with his people where they are in the promised land. And, and this little section of the book of Exodus, 32 to 34, comes in the middle of uh, all the details of the tabernacle. 
Uh, and these chapters are telling us how and why God can dwell with his people. But the ch- purpose of chapter 32 is to expose and to highlight Israel's sin. Why is it that they need a faithful God? Why is it that they need sin to be dealt with? Now, up to this point in my life, I haven't had much need to go to the doctor. I've had a couple of minor operations and some bits of me keep wearing out. Uh, But when we do go to the doctor, it wouldn't be much good if they simply told us what we want to hear. My doctor doesn't. He says it's just old age. That's not what I want to hear. I want him to say he can do something about it. But it would be no good if he just said, uh, yeah, it's fine. Uh, We want to hear what the diagnosis is and we want to hear what the prognosis is, however bad it might be. If we had uh, cancer and we were told everything was fine, we just needed a little bed rest, well, that wouldn't be right, would it? And Exodus 32 is like a good doctor's diagnosis. We're not left in any doubt about our condition. But my word, it's painful reading. You see, if we drift in our walk with God, it will almost certainly involve our soft peddling about sin. We, we need to remember sin. We need to remember Exodus 32. And we need to have some kind of open heart surgery from God's word. We know, don't we, God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. And in our passage, the first thing we see is the nature of, of sin. As we read, we see the surprising speed of Israel's descent into this awful sin. By chapter 32, the Israelites, they've been redeemed from slavery. They've been taken out of the land of Egypt. The Red Sea has been opened. They've walked across on dry ground. Uh, Their enemies have been killed in the returning waters. They've seen the smoke and the fire and the cloud and the lightning at Sinai. They've heard God's voice. Every morning they wake up and they have manna to eat. They have the pillars of cloud and fire. Only a few chapters earlier, in chapter 24, we read that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And yet they couldn't wait 40 days. Just look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. You see, the people have grown impatient. Perhaps they're worried that Moses has abandoned them. Perhaps they're beginning to panic that they're stuck in the desert. Whether it's fear, uh, whether it's contempt for Moses. This Moses, they call him. 
The temptation to doubt God's promises are thoughts that often lead to sin. And the people come to Aaron like a mob. I've been very distressed watching some pictures in uh, Cairo over this last week. It's horrendous. We've stood in that square, my my wife and I, in the last uh, couple of years, and you just kind of think, how can it be? Mobs are frightening things, aren't they? And actually, their timing couldn't be worse because Moses is actually at the top of the mountain getting the commandments, the tabernacle rules, so that God can come and live with his people. And whilst God is delivering this beautiful plan, the people are rebelling at the foot of the mountain. Uh, there they are, uh, still eating the manna that God is providing, as they say to Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And some of the gold that they brought out of Egypt that was meant for the tabernacle is put to a very different use. And in verses 1 to 6, we have a breakdown of the nature of their idolatry. At first, there's a rejection of God and his word. As we're reading this, we're thinking, surely we don't, they can't have forgotten the Ten Commandments already. In case we've forgotten, just listen to what God had said to them a little earlier in Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You shall not make gods of silver or gold to be with me, nor shall you make gods of gold. So they've thrust Moses aside in their anxiety about the future. They've rejected God's law in verse 19 when Moses throws down the tablets and they break. It's a picture of what Israel has done with God's word. But not only do they reject God, they replace him. In verses 4 to 5, that word God's in verse 4, it could easily be translated God. Israel thinks that they are worshipping God, but actually they've just replaced him with a lump of metal. And even if you build an altar in front of it and call a festival to the Lord, it won't hide the fact that this is not God. And we can't reject God without replacing him with something else. Our hearts are spiritual vacuums. We'll always worship something. And in breaking the second commandment, not to make any image to be worshipped, they've broken the first commandment, not to have any gods before the Lord. And their language is taken from the Exodus story. They say it was the calf that had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. But we know from chapter 20, we know it's only the Lord who did this. Even though they think they're worshipping the Lord, they've replaced him with a false god. One commentator says, false worship of God is the worship of a false god. And the calf or the bull was a very common picture of a foreign god. It was a picture of strength and fertility. So Baal was depicted as a bull. And Israel had tried to make the Lord into a kind of more acceptable version of 
the God they wanted, a more culturally appropriate version. But they only distort him, and it all goes pear-shaped. And that's not just a mistake by a small but vocal minority. If you look in verse 3, it says, So all the people took off rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. All the people did it. Everyone was involved. It's deliberate, it's intentional, it's clear, it's premeditated. And Aaron even takes time to design it, as though he's working on his art school graduation project. Um, you know, rejecting and replacing God will only lead to one outcome, and that's rebellion. Look at verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now the commentators say, this isn't innocent play. This isn't tiddlywinks. This is play with no clothes on. Uh, And it's taken no time at all for idolatry to lead to unbridled sensuality. Just like the idolatrous nations all around them. And and even when Moses comes down the mountain in uh, verses 18 and 19, uh, the party is still going on at Sinai. I don't know what Rotherham is like on a Saturday night, but I can imagine that this was like Doncaster on a Saturday night, or Ibiza, or Ayanapa. I don't go to those places, but I hear things. So we shouldn't be surprised, because we become like what we worship. They've been worshipping this uh, symbol of strength and facility, a a bull calf. And so uh, promiscuity, verse 6, or being stiff-necked, verse 9, or even being let loose, taking off all restraint, in verse 25, is just them following the God that they are worshipping. You know, designing our own gods leads to designing our own morals. And our own morals are always going to suit our own sinful desires, right down to the ground. We've looked at the sin of the people. That's the people making a big mistake. But what about Aaron? He's a big person making a big mistake. Is it poor old Aaron trying to do the best he can with a bad bunch of people? Or is it complicit and weak Aaron? compromising just as much as the next Israelite. Well, if we read it carefully, the text tells us it's the latter, as we see the, uh, the weakness and the compromise of their leader. However we read it, Aaron doesn't come out of this chapter very well. We need to pray for the leaders of our churches. He was supposed to be, Aaron, the co-leader with Moses, ruling God's people whilst his brother was up the mountain. Perhaps in verse 5 and 6 he's trying to limit the damage by calling a feast to the Lord. But actually, wouldn't you expect this prophet, God's man, simply to say no to the people when they come to him in verse 1. But actually he chooses the favour of the people above honouring God. He chooses popularity over what is right. And it's an absolutely stunning failure from the priest of Israel. Someone said he becomes the patron saint of pragmatism. He avoids conflict and difficulty. And in trying to please the people, he simply gives in. 
And he tries to paper over his wickedness by giving the appearance, the veneer of uh, reality and, and truth. But actually that's the tendency in all of us. We, we prefer to please one another rather than God. Sometimes to dress up our sin as though it's quite legitimate. What I do, it might not be what you do, but what I do, well, it's... Uh, and even if we don't boldly and deliberately set out to sin, you know, our deceitful hearts will convince us into thinking that what we're doing is okay. It's acceptable. Uh, the calf and our idols, they'll let us do what we want and they'll never judge us. They're completely useless in terms of judgment and they're completely useless in terms of salvation. Look at verse 21 and the shock and exasperation of Moses when he confronts Aaron. What did these people do to you, he said? It's like saying, uh, did they take your children hostage? They took my, some of my children hostage sometimes. I'd be very pleased. But saying that, what, did they take your children hostage? Did they threaten to cut your arm off? What did they threaten to do? And actually, Aaron gives them an object lesson in how not to confess sin. Step one, be defensive. Look, Moses, it's no big deal. Step two, blame someone else. You know what these people are like. They made me do it. Step three, you tell lies. I only threw the gold in the fire and this calf jumped out. How ludicrous is that? But how quickly, when our sin is pointed out, do we get defensive, we blame someone else, we spin and tell lies about what we've done. We minimise our sin. We minimise our involvement. And in verse 35, the Lord makes it clear that Aaron is just as guilty as the rest. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So sin can happen quickly. It involves rejecting and replacing and rebelling against God. And it comes from weak, compromising hearts. And we've all got them. Let me turn from the nature of sin to the impact of sin. Because in the Bible, sin always has consequences. We can see that in Exodus 32. Let's look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, and my wrath might burn against them. And I might consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you. So the first response we see is God's anger. We remember that this is the God who rescued Israel. He carried them on eagles' wings, as it were, to himself. But now he says he's going to wipe out Israel and start again with Moses. God had made a covenant with Abraham that there would be a mighty people uh, from his descendants. And uh, Moses is saying, I've made a start. God is saying, I've made a start here, but I'll wipe them out and I'll start again with you. That might sound harsh, but when we think about it, it's quite reassuring, isn't it? Because if a wife came home to find a husband in the arms of another woman, we'd expect her to be angry. If she didn't get angry, it might show, actually, she didn't really care about her husband at all. So when we read in verse 10 of God's anger burning hot against the people, that's a good thing. We don't have a God who's indifferent. He hates the sin that spoils his people. 
In fact, if we make for ourselves a God that doesn't get angry with our sin, we're worshipping a false God. We're worshipping no God at all. And in verse 25, we see that sin leads to dishonour to God's name. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. And we know that it's true. Whenever God's people reject his rule over their lives and go their own way, God's name is dragged, as it were, through the mud for the world around to see. Uh, Christians and Christian communities are supposed to be witnesses to the world. And if we fail, if we fall mightily into sin, then the world looks at us and says, what? Perhaps the most controversial part is the Levite execution squad. In verse 26 we read that Moses asked anyone who was on the Lord's side to join him. It's an open invitation to repent. But only the Levites respond. And then the execution begins. Sin leads to death. It sounds serious, but sin is serious. 3,000 people die. And 3,000 people might sound a lot. But actually God is showing his mercy here. 3,000 actually is only a tiny fraction of the whole of the people who were there camped. And we have to ask the question, where does our true loyalty lie? Is it with God or with these 3,000 undeserving sinful people? If we are more offended by the death of 3,000 unrepentant sinners than with God glory, being dragged through the mud in this chapter, then actually we've got a God in our own image. Uh, and we might think that 3,000 might be the end of it. But then we get the surprise of verse 35. And God sends a plague. We don't expect that, do we? We think get to the end of the uh, execution squad. We think, well, that might be it. But actually, it's a stark warning for those who are unrepentant that sin has some irreversible consequences. You remember a plague was uh, one of the sins in, uh, uh, one of the uh, plagues in Egypt. So they're, they're suffering the same fate as the Egyptians. And it is a, a picture of the seriousness of sin. So, is this game over for the Israelites? Uh, because they've really messed up. Uh, but of course, we know, don't we, that, uh, good news is there's a, a remedy for sin. In some senses, God's judgment is the remedy for sin. It deals with sin. Uh, but we see two more aspects of uh, God's remedy in this chapter. We've already seen how uh, Aaron, he, he gives in to the people's demands. Uh, but Moses gives us a very different picture. Uh, we see in verses 7 to 14, Moses the intercessor. Moses the mediator. If you look at verse 7, God distances himself, as it were, from Israel. He calls them your people, Moses, whom you rescue. He's clear about their sin and that they deserve judgment. But while the people are fashioning an idol, God is fashioning a mediator up there on the mountain. Look at verse 10. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order to make a great nation of you. 
If God had wanted to destroy Israel, he would have done it. But God actually wants to do good to this people, even now. And he wants to include, I think, uh, Moses in that doing good. God wants Moses to mediate. I think it's a bit like God saying, I'm going to destroy everyone, Moses. Is that okay with you? What do you think? Just step aside, let me get on with it, unless you've got something to say, Moses. And Moses intercedes. He implores God. And he uses the words of verse 7, your people, Moses, back to God. He makes Israel God's people whom God saved. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And you know, we need someone to speak to God on our behalf, don't we? Hebrews chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 make it clear that it's Jesus is interceding for us. In Hebrews, we read, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. Isn't that wonderful? Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And in Romans, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is the one who, like Moses in verse 13, pleads God's promises. But our sin needs to be dealt with, and it is, because of what the Bible calls atonement. In verse 30, Moses understands that sin must be paid for, and that death is required. So he offers up his own life. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. But Moses can't offer up his life for the sins of others because he's a sinner himself. But he points us to the tabernacle where sacrifices are made and ultimately to the Lord Jesus. In Exodus 30, uh, verse 10, God says, Aaron shall make atonement on the horns of once a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generation. So there in the tabernacle, God had given a way of making atonement. But the ultimate fulfilment of atonement is at the cross. Jesus has not only dealt with our sin, but dealt with God's anger by giving up his life in our place. So Paul can say in Romans chapter 3, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Big people making big mistakes. The people of Israel. Aaron is the third one. Walt Disney big mistake he doesn't know the Lord what difference will Exodus 32 make to us uh, tomorrow in the office 
in the home, on the trip to the seaside, perhaps. We could apply lessons to the world. Uh, Tell them, it's true, there's only one way to worship God, through Jesus, no other way will do. And even if we think we're worshipping God, but it's not as he sets out in his word, then it's sin. And as we've already seen, there are consequences for sin. So we could apply it to the world. But the Apostle Paul brings it closer to home. He says that Exodus 32 was written for Christians. If you turn to 1 Corinthians in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, Paul is describing what happened in the Exodus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And Paul's purpose in reminding the Corinthians of this comes from verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Exodus 32 is a warning not to the world, says Paul, but to us as Christians to flee from idolatry idolatry you see we don't worship golden calves do we but how often do we think and live as people who put someone or something above God how often do we make our wives or our husbands, our families, our work our house, our car, our money how often do we think as though those things will save us Throughout a day, many times during a day, we can make other things our functional saviour. And we take God away from the throne of our lives. And so often, the worst thing is that we don't even realise it. It's worth looking at how the description of sin in Exodus 32 fits us today. And there are three things that we need to recognise. We should recognise the pervasiveness of sin. It affects every single one of us. Leaders, teenagers, mums, kids. It's the same now as it was then. And we mustn't pretend that sin doesn't lurk in each of our hearts because that's the tendency of everyone, including me, all Christians, uh, to resist the word of God. The problem for the Israelites wasn't the golden calf. It was their hearts. Someone said that God could take the people out of Egypt in a day. But it took 40 years to take Egypt out of the people. Because our hearts, like their hearts, are factories of producing idols. And then we need to recognise the subtlety of sin. Because we make gods in an image that we choose and it all feels very acceptable and it's very hard to spot because sin comes so easily to us. All of us are 
tempted to kind of rub out those little Bible truths we find ever inconvenient, to make a few adjustments to accommodate God to what we want. We still call ourselves Christian, we keep coming to the church, of the young people's activities, we keep singing our favourite hymns, we may even convince ourselves that God doesn't mind our sin at all. It's not really sin, is it? So we exchange the true God for a God that we imagine, for a God that we want him to be like. But actually having a kind of cut and paste God where we add what we like and take away what we don't, it just won't do. So worshipping a God, for example, that thinks uh, uh, relationship, intimate relationships outside marriage is okay, and the worship of a false God. Worshipping a God who says it's okay to pursue money above everything else, it's idolatry. It's making a God in an image that we want. And we're good at it, particularly when it comes to indulging our senses, what we look at, what we chat about, what we think about. Have we made a God ourselves who doesn't mind these little sins, who just overlooks our sin? Finally, we must recognise the seriousness of sin. Sin incurs God's anger. We mustn't take it lightly because there's something desperately, stubbornly, irrationally wicked in every one of our hearts. We need an intercessor. And we need atonement. We need someone to speak to God on our behalf. And I don't know about you, but I need to preach the gospel to Graham Cutts every day of my life. Moses interceded for the Israelites. I make no apologies for repeating something I said a bit earlier. We have an intercessor who is infinitely greater than Moses. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, interceding for us, for me, right now, at the right hand of God the Father. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. No condemnation, saved to the uttermost. We have someone infinitely greater than Moses, who couldn't only intercede for us, but he could provide the atonement that we need, and he did it at the cross. Jesus not only dealt with our sin, But he dealt with God's anger by giving up his life in place of us. We're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's easy to get down about sin. Let's rejoice in Jesus. We have an intercessor and atonement in him. He was crucified, died and was buried. He rose again on the third day. He defeated sin and death for you and for me. He is the King of Kings at the right hand of God the Father, ever 
ever, ever interceding for us. No condemnation, my brothers and sisters. Saved to the uttermost. Justified by his grace. How amazing is that? Let us take Paul's advice. Let's flee from idolatry. But let's flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may his be all the glory. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we are a people who deserve nothing. We merit nothing, Father. We can earn nothing. We can do nothing that will help us to become right with you. But we simply bring our sinfulness to you, our sinful nature, Father, our sinful acts, and ask for your forgiveness. And we come in confidence, Father, because we belong to you. We thank you for our lovely Saviour. We thank you for all that he is, for who he is, for what he's done. Oh, Father, please, help us to recognise our sinfulness. Help us to flee from it, Father. But help us to cling to our lovely Saviour. Father, help us to rejoice that we have a one who not only mediates for us, but atones for us. Father, make us very, very grateful, we pray. Help us to praise and to worship and to adore him who will own his work. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.